Hey, Gabriel Lake. Hey, Gabriel Jose. Where are we today? I'm still in San Francisco. I'm sorry. I'm still in Chicago. We it didn't snow too much this week, you know. We even have like a 65 degrees day. We had a 70-ish degree day where oh. I only wore a shirt to brunch, like a short shirt to brunch, and it was pretty warm. Good. Well, yeah, it only goes away for a couple of days, and when it's cold, it's like, oh my god, it's 60. Hey, you complained about being colder here than in Chicago. I was, I was, because the humidity, holy shit, that's next to the bay, that's not okay. That's that's like a break of contract directly. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, it gets cold here. Yeah. Uh, but today, it's a special episode because it's our 150 episode. Congratulations for making it this far. Yeah. Impressed. Yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really proud of ourselves, you know, and also for five listeners. I know that I change the, the, the number every single time, but the five listeners that they keep us going, they give us energy. Whoever you are, thank you. I was on the phone with my sister today and I was like, she and I went and saw the movie that we watched today together like 20 years ago in a movie theater. Oh, that's so cool. I was like, hey, we watched this film. It reminded me of, I was a freshman in college, so it made me think of you. And I said, we picked it because it's our 150th episode. And she's like, whoa, most podcasts don't make it after one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, people get together, they make one, and then like, nope, no podcast for us. Well, but the thing is, like, we started already knowing that this would work because we're already doing it. The only difference that we're going to be doing is like just putting a bit more of format and a microphone on our face, you know, in front of our mouse. And probably it was not like the first thing that we have put in front of our mouths before. So. All right, what did we watch? <laughs> okay, that that was good. Like a good way of, uh, of breaking that awkward moment. Uh, we was the 19th 20. I feel weird because you're always the one that introduced the movie. The 1920 classic, German classic, silent film, of course, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. We did. And how do you say that in Spanish? El Gabinete del Dr. Caligari. And there was a band, I think that I told you this, that there was a band that it was called Gabinete Caligari. So, yeah. Cabinet Caligari. All right. I was wondering because of our meeting invite, there's some phrase I didn't understand. Oh, yeah, I realized that I was missing a letter or two letters. So, yeah, sorry about that. I, I've been like two visits for a series. Uh, Gabriel's visits, Caligari's cabinets. Okay. Um, he was missing the T. Yeah. So, this but, yeah. is actually my pick. Yeah. Um, Why did you pick it? So, I had another film picked out after our last podcast, after we watched. Um, Silver Linings Playbook, and it was another film by that director, and I can't even remember which one it was, but then when you reminded me that this was our 150th episode, I thought, well, we should do something more interesting. Didn't we do Metropolis for 100? Yeah, it was. So maybe like our anniversary episodes, they're like silent German films. We go to the classics. We go like to, to where everything is started. Yeah, and they can only be German. <laughs> So that's that's why I picked it, just to commemorate 150 episodes. No, that's a good idea. And as this was your pick, I guess that I had to just summarize it. Uh, and go to have, like, maybe you had to help me at some points, you know, 
<laughs> but basically the story opens in a courtyard uh, I don't think that they tell us at the beginning where they are it's just a courtyard and we see like the main character like talking with someone and they talk about like something really weird that happened some time ago so uh, the whole story is basically a flashback that connects to the present and uh, it talks about like this small village in Germany that they're going to have like their market days like a fair i remember what words they use yeah it's like a, a fair of entertainments of every type yeah of every type you can imagine and uh, a new person arrives to actually have one display you know to have one more display in the fair uh and that display is about a guy that has been sleeping since they were born and they Sonambulist. Sonambulist. But sonambulist. But sonambulist is supposed to be, they call it sonambulist, but at the same time, a sonambulist isn't someone that walks while they are sleeping. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Somnambulism is sleepwalking. Yeah. Interesting. I somnambule. But you are? I do, yeah. Oh, well, do you remember like that comic that I'm going to be like, seeing in a couple of months? My Michael Pribble? Yeah, sleepwalking. Yeah, he had like one of the uh, This American Life episodes. It was about like him almost dying from sleepwalking. Yeah. yeah, that's a great stand up set. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. The guy is like hilarious. Uh, but, anyways, going back to this, is that the sonambulist like just wakes up, or at least he opens his eyes and he has some kind of clairvoyance power. That you can ask yeah, them so anything. He is the his master is Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. and the act is that Dr. Caligari controls him, so he wakes up the sleeping kid, uh, Cesar. I, I don't know how to say it. Cesar, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Um, and then he has like powers of divination, where people can ask him questions, and he knows the answers to everything. Yeah. And. Uh... And this connects to the main character because he actually goes to see the show with his best friend and his best friend just asks him, he's like, hey, when I'm going to die? And uh, Cesar replies with like, at the crack of day. And just with that is that the guy just gets murdered at night. And other murders start like just happening around town, you know, and then the movie turns in. Were you, gonna... Were you saying something? Okay. Uh... <laughs> And then the movie turns into a bit more of a police story or narration about like trying to figure it out who is killing them. So they find uh, that I had to say I was like pretty impressed about this part is that they found this uh, this thief that he was trying to murder someone in a similar modus operandi to what the news said that the other crimes uh, were perpetrated like for actually just like piggybacking or just pin it on the other guy that he didn't know who he was so a crime spree to commit something but it wasn't connected at all but isn't it like fascinating that part i feel is like wow that's that's smart that's the kind of stuff that you see on thrillers nowadays about like no this was not the real killer this was not the real serial killer this is a copycat but that actually happens with some frequency in real serial killer cases there'll be like an active serial killer and then someone else will be like i want to kill someone too True, but it's just thing is like when did, when did all the serial killer theory started? It was in the sixties and seventies, no? 
Yes, but I mean, there were serial killers before that, and they just didn't talk about them the same way we do. Yeah, but it's like this, this narration, albeit they don't use the same terms, is the same. It's a serial killer, and they actually, yeah. it has a copycat. Which is funny because M, another yeah. silent German film we watched, was it, was it silent? Mm -hmm. no, no, no. no, it wasn't, yeah. But it was also like an impressionistic early German film about a serial killer. What the fuck was happening in Germany in like the night, the tens, twenties, and thirties? Well, just think that it was between the two world wars, so they had like a lot of violence, you know, and fear beating. Also, it's interesting that this film got a wide reception because it came out just after uh, the U.S. started allowing German films to come back because oh, they nice. weren't allowing them after World War One. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go back to the synopsis. Yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, he gets uh, the friend gets murdered, and then the main character—I don't remember his name. Victor was it? I think Alan. No, Mr. Alan is the one who gets murdered. Um... Sorry, no. Francis? Yes, that was it. Francis. Okay. Um, Francis gets involved with the police and tries to investigate on his side, you know, about this. And also at the same time, his fiance, like this woman that we actually see that is also around in the courtyard at the beginning, but she's like just lost in her thoughts. She doesn't talk or anything in a very like lost-minded kind of way. Uh, she gets close. What was the what was the situation? I don't remember how they cross paths with uh with Cesar. That he runs into them or he sees him. So uh Francis went to connect with Jane's dad so that they could get permission from the police to investigate the somnambulist. Yeah. And Jane ends up going to look for dad at the somnambulist and then like goes in and, and meets the sleeping kid and then later wakes up, yeah. Car, she shows up to her place and he at first he's gonna kill her. And then he just decides to kidnap her. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit more. It's a woman, you know. It's the pretty woman. So this is not about no, killing. Exactly it's about like kidnap, you know. Uh, and then I had to say honestly, <laughs> I had to be like completely honest to the audience. There were like a couple of times that I actually closed my eyes for a moment. And now so I just pick up the synopsis from here. Well, no, I just I just remember that basically uh, after they discover that the other guy was not the murderer. I think that they were like just doing an inspection on the uh, roulot in the RV where the Dr. Caligari is, the police. And they say, like, no, the guy is sleeping. He's like, he doesn't have anything else. And they leave. And then it's immediately when the news come about like, no, the guy that we detain is not the murderer. The murderer is still at loose. Because the, the man they suspected that was arrested was in prison when Jane got abducted. Correct. And there was, but there's no way it was the it wasn't Cesar because we were watching him and then they go back and they discover yeah. Yeah. spoiler alert, hundred three years later, um, that it was a dummy in the box. Yeah. And so when they discover it's a dummy, Dr. Caligari is there, but he runs away, he sees a moment to escape and he runs into an insane asylum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Francis is like, do you have a patient here called Caligari? And they're like, no, he runs the place. He's the boss. And so they speak with him. They discover it's the same person. 
And then they say, oh, Francis, you're the one who's insane. And mm. they put him in a straitjacket and put him into the bed that in Francis's, like, fantasy is where Dr. Caligari was originally, like, arrested and, like, in hell. And then... then That's... You see the police do an investigation into Dr. Cal- well, yeah, I kind of skipped that part where... They're investigating Dr. Caligari's office when they think he's the bad guy, and they find his journals, and he's obsessed with this guy who basically found uh, a somnambulist and toured towns in northern Italy, basically convincing the person who's asleep to murder everyone that he wanted. And then we find out that that's not true, because Francis is the one who's insane, and he walks back into the insane asylum, into a room that was empty before, and we see all the characters of his fantasy. Yep. And we realize it's kind of a Wizard of Oz meets Jacob's Ladder. Like, you see all the characters that were in the dream, and it kind of makes sense. Wait, in the Wizard of Oz, that happens? In the Wizard of Oz, she fantasizes about the Scarecrow, the Lion, and... I can't remember the third, but then when she wakes up... And her the team, like, friends. Yes. So her friends from the farm are there, and you realize she was just putting her friends into the fantasy, and she's like, and you were there, and you were there. Oh, yeah. There. Yeah, yeah. that's the reason why the fiancé was there, too. Yeah. yeah. It's basically like just the debut at that point. And, um, I have to say, it's like, I don't know if there was anything before this movie like this, but is it, this is basically what invented the idea of what a twist. And I think they do it incredibly well. I mean, yeah. to today's standards, it's a little bit simple, the story. They're also, like, reduced to title cards and things. So, like, I get it. But this is pretty well considered, like, the first true horror film and the first, like, art house film. Because it's weird. And it's fucking cool. And I yeah. loved it. I loved <laughs> it so much. So, is there any more to add about the synopsis before we move into how much I love this film? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's as you said, it's pretty straightforward. I think that even like just like took too long about like more like someone imagines, someone narrates about like how there was a serial killer at their place and how they tried to chase them down. But basically they ended up in the asylum that they have always been there and they made up all this narrative. In their, just mind. So, in their mind, yep. In, yeah. So the ending, not everything up until the ending, but the ending is kind of Shutter Island in a way. Um, yeah. Just that we find out it's all in this person's head and it turns out that everything is flip-flop. Who was the person that he was narrating the story to? He was another intern? I think it was another patient because if you remember when they walk back into the big main hallway and we see all the characters of the film, he points to the guy and he's like, that's the somnambulist. Don't let him tell you your fortune. He's dangerous. And the guy just gets terrified and kind of walks away as if he believes it. Oh, so I think that was another crazy person. I don't think we can say crazy anymore. There was another mentally ill person that he just happened to be talking to in the courtyard. Yeah. No, that, that's totally true. Yeah. I... I remember like, it was this movie like probably 20 years ago or so. I heard like a lot of times about it. And it's one of those movies that I mean, you know the twist is still not about it, you know, it's still a bit more about like just being shocked about like it's a movie from 1920, 
you know, it's the same thing as with Metropolis. There is a 1921, I think, and it's a this is sci-fi. It may be a bit more age. Metropolis may be a tiny bit more age because special effects have done like so many jumps, you know, that this a bit more of it. You could do this nowadays and it couldn't be that different. It could be Shattered Island, as you said. I have to say that um, I was blown away by the art style of everything. And this is all filmed on sets. Yeah. But like the city, the, the town that this is supposed to take place in is literally like out of Tim Burton's mind. Yeah. And the doors are all slanted or made out of a triangle. Windows are weird shapes. Buildings are weird shapes. Like it felt very, very fresh but also very familiar in a weird way. And I think it's just because we've seen so many filmmakers kind of replicate this like eerie dreamlike state that I I feel like it's reductive to say Tim Burton, but when I think about the art direction, even down to the font on the silent like um, dialogue lines, everything is so well designed and so weird and creepy, but also like kind of charming in a weird sort of like, well, place in the 1910s yeah no i mean cinema and we should as well at some point like just checking like more silent films you know from that time because i think that they they had an idea they had a vision about like how cinema should work and you can see how adventurous they were you know but at the same time adventurous and also like just being able to build up a strong narrative a strong enough narratives that even by today is like look this is not bad. It's that like you could actually just give like two coats of paint and this could be almost a story nowadays. So when I was, I saw this when I was either 17 or 18. It was my freshman year of college um, and my sister dragged me to it. I think she was supposed to see two silent films for a class, whatever. So I went with her and I knew that I had like an interest in film, but I definitely didn't have great taste at that time. And I remember walking out and being like, that's not just a good movie for a silent movie. This is a good movie. Like, I was super entertained. The plot is compelling. The acting is pretty good. The art direction is insane. Um, and I felt exactly the same when I watched it today, if not more so. Yeah. Well, because the thing is that now you have watched like, way more cinema and you can understand what was the influence that this movie had. Yeah. And it's insane, honestly. It's like this movie, the influence is like so obvious that is, like, for example, with Metropolis, you can say that it's a proto-genre. You know, that is like, okay, some things are here, but there are other stuff that is a bit weird, you know, it's not perfect, but this one is like a bit less ambitious and it has like most of the elements that you will have in any thriller and a bit of the horror stuff. I always think that it's more thriller than horror, but, you know, it's like the sixth sense, for example. So in so actually right before we started recording we kind of got into a conversation about the movie and we just listed all these directors that we can absolutely see were influenced by this like uh you said fincher i said Ingmar Samalang, yeah i said samalan is a wouldn't he wouldn't see he wouldn't know what to do without these you have no idea david david lynch i mean like you can just see that this really truly was the genesis of and to say it's a twist movie is is reductive because it was the first one, like it's it's interesting, but like you can just see 
all the films that were born from this. No, no, no. Look, I don't. I'm not trying to be like reductionist when I say that it's like this is a movie with a twist. Because the thing is, like, uh, the way that this one does the twist is gradual. You know, it's like the narr- the narrative actually drives the character to the position that we see him at the beginning. You know, it's not about like he was dead all along. Ben. And because I had seen this one other time, 20, 19, 20 years ago, I remembered enough about it to watch for clues about what the ending would be because I, I couldn't remember what the ending was. Mm-hmm. But there are all sorts of, um, e- not Easter eggs, but like breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. They're like they're, they're trying to tell you. like. Was there? Because I remember I remember the ending. I think that is the only thing that I remember is the ending. You know, because even when I started, I was watching it with my boyfriend and it was like, just remember this scene. Just remember this this one minute that it just happened. So, for instance, at the very beginning, um, when he's talking to his friends, Francis is talking to his friend about the horrible past he had, and Jane walks by, mm-hmm. and is clearly not right. There's something wrong with her. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, "That's my fiance. We experienced some bad things." I thought this is a huge fucking clue. Like, <laughs> yeah. Not everything is as as we're told. It's it is, and in that regard, it kind of is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. I mean, it is. You just don't. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's one hundred percent that you know. It's like a how do you say? It's only the same case as the usual suspects. Now that is a film I don't remember. Kevin Spacey, that he spends like the whole time talking with the police. I remember the DVD cover. I remember how we discover at the end. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But what I mean is like uh, Kevin Spacey narrates something and we have like a flashback scene, you know, about like, this is what happened. And it's like, well, maybe it wasn't exactly that, you know, what happened. But this is like the same case is that he's not only like just telling you something that you can believe or not. That is like what Tarantino does in Reservoir Dogs is that he doesn't show 90% of what happened in the robbery. But we have to trust them, and they even like distrust each other. Is that this is a bit more about like just using visual language a step further? When Tarantino actually tries to be like, no, no, this is like theater. It's like I'm not going to be like showing you everything that it is. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. A fun, fun trivia fact from the film's Wikipedia page: the filmmakers didn't want there to be a twist ending. The studio oh. forced them to do it. I had to say that I will go with the studio on this one. Yep, I completely agree. I feel like without that twist ending, it would have been a solid, entertaining film. But that ending fucking elevates the shit out of it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I know. I don't know of any other film before that that did anything like this. Well, I have to be honest. I haven't watched like many pre-1920s <laughs> movies, you know? But I would say that is that this... I was genuinely surprised the first time that I saw it. Like, oh... Okay, that makes sense. But it was more like because I was not expecting a resource like this that is so tried nowadays to start in 1920. It's interesting because the first time I saw it, my sister and I completely disagreed on what the ending meant. And this time I watched it and there's so clearly one reading that I don't know what my 18-year-old self was thinking. I was like, no, there's no ambiguity here. It's pretty clear what's going Oh, so on. you were thinking like when you were younger, that is like, well, maybe he's not crazy. Maybe he's being fool. In my mind, the, the, I think the fantasy was continuing on. 
I, I don't know what I was thinking, but we disagree. <laughs> and I kept waiting to see that ambiguity. There's no ambiguity. No, there's no. No, no, because even like when you say about like they point at everyone in the room, I think that there are like some people that are even like just they're villagers that they were on the displays, you know, on the memories. Maybe like the guy with the monkey that I love, like that monkey, the tiny monkey that he's like just basically screaming at everyone that just goes there for giving some money. I knew that I should have recognized everyone the camera spent time on, but I couldn't place them all. But the ones I could, I was like, yeah, uh, and something that I was uh, I was thinking and I was telling my boyfriend about is that uh, the uh, something interesting about silent cinema is that at the end it's like when they were playing these movies everywhere they would have the score and they would be playing the piano along so it's like you could see like a movie twice and it could be like a different experience depending on like the skill of the uh, of the pianist the of the pianist you know or maybe they have like a full orchestra who knows um but what many movies did is that they had like multiple scores across their whole life and something that it was like for a brief period of time i think that it was in in the 2000s it was like some bands remade like silent film scores so uh crap uh of boys did a version of battles in potenkin really yeah and i rem- yeah and i remember like a couple of other ones like the man with a camera you know like the soviet one there was an- i've heard of it i've never seen it i didn't watch it yeah it's Cinema studies is the kind of stuff that you would only watch in cinema studies and never again. Um, and there was another band that did it, you know, and it was like a cool band. I don't remember who it was, uh, but actually that reminded me. I was like, oh, I had the feeling that there was someone that also did something weird with this movie. And it's what you also saw that it was like this band. I think it was Hobgoblin that is like a new soundtrack for the movie, but they also colored the movie and they added voiceover and I, he- I heard they did crazy green screen stuff to put new actors in oh god i didn't see that part i mean i i started honestly reading a new york times movie review that i thought was about the original and then i found out oh wait no this is some remake um and it said something where they took like the set design again is so incredible that i think they tried to preserve that in whatever way i honest to god almost thought about picking this as my next pick which obviously isn't now but next week because i like this film so much gotcha but this sounds like a bit more of a okay there is a there is a remake from 2005. that's what i was reading the review of gotcha uh yeah but this is not the version that i was talking about The album that this band did, uh, like the soundtrack, uh, Hobgoblin, is on, uh, on Spotify. So we could just watch the movie on Canopy and then hit play on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, as long as it's like the same thing. That's cool, man. I mean, if I was a musician that composed, I would try to do something cool like this. And with the insane visuals, 
the special effects, but the set design, the makeup, the actors, I think you could do something really, really, really cool. I'm surprised that Tim Burton, because I didn't make that connection, I thought about like how bizarre like the village is, how over the top, how gloomy it feels, even if it's supposed to be normal. But I also thought that, well, this was Germany. You think about uh, Metropolis, it has the same style about like everything is like the windows are when they are down underground you know is it are slightly different that is slightly like a bit more bizarre than everything else and emma also has like many scenes that they feel is like the camera is slightly off they play a lot with just making spaces look creepier than they are yeah and i honestly i hate the comparison because i feel like this film is way better than Tim, anything Tim Burton has done. And also, I don't think... Oh, shoot. I always forget this. He did not do The Nightmare Before Christmas. He did That's what I kept thinking was, this is like The Nightmare Before Christmas Town. I know, but he did He only produced it. He I did know, the, the Corpse Bride. That is basically The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> yeah. But would you say... Now I'm super curious to hear your score. You know, it's like, would you say that this is better than Ed Wood? I know that they are completely different movies, except that they are both in a black. Should I tell you? Should I actually just surprise you later? You should, because I have, I have two scores. I've gone back and forth. Okay. Day and during this conversation. Okay. Uh, 8.5. It was oh, a score. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I but I this, for me, is definitely a higher score. This for me is an important film i agree it's it's important ed wood is great but i don't feel like it's that important. let's just say that if someone tells me i like cinema and just tell me is that hey i watched Ed Wood and i watched the cabinet of dr caligari i would be like a bit more surprised than the other way around there is a cabinet of dr caligari yeah you can only watch oh, let's just say two two silent films it would be this and metropolis for me not even Nosferatu, it's a decent metropolis. I feel like for me to contribute to this question is ridiculous because I've seen like six silent films and I can only remember three of them. Um, and one is super racist that I would never recommend anybody watch. Oh, uh, The Birth of a Nation? Yeah. <laughs> I, I this one for sure and then I'm going to tell you this and you'll be in shock. I haven't seen Nosferatu. <clears throat> Uh, but actually, the birth of a nation, yeah, is fucking racist. But at the same time, it's funny that it always gets like mentioned as where the mother editing techniques come from. Yeah, I think in terms of like filmmaking, the craft, people really respect it. But I personally, I don't know why. I, I can't. I feel so bad watching that movie that I. It's just. I'd rather watch Benny's video like four times. Probably <laughs> the length of Birth of a Nation is probably as long as playing Benny's video four times back to back. <laughs> well, it's two hours, the Birth of a Nation. I never watch it. I only watch like a small snippets, you know, about like, oh, this is editing. But it's like when I read online about like, what was it about? It's like, ah, I don't think that I'm ever going to be watching this. Thank you. Yep. I'm, I'm done with that movie. DW Adapted from the Clansman, a historical romance of the Kikus clan. Oh, oh, oh. 
Uh, budget, $100,000. Uh, box office from 50 to 100 million. Holy crap. And it was 1915. 15. But back in the day, they played those movies for like four years because there weren't new movies to put in theaters. It's so like Gone with the Wind was in, in movie theaters for something insane, like 70 months. So like 70. <laughs> If you put Titanic in a theater for 70 months, it would have made like $500 billion. Do you think that people would still go home? Well, the thing is that you wouldn't have any other alternative of watching this movie. I mean, I definitely would have seen Titanic at least five or six times, and I saw it five or six times. Imagine imagine living in a world that is like, hey, I just watched my favorite movie, and I'm never going to be able to watch it again. It's fucking scary. It is weird. I never thought about that. We're so spoiled. Yeah, he's like, oh, you know, I just, I just watch, I don't know, like Midsommar. And he's like, well, next month probably you can just watch it on streaming. I, I watch YouTube a fair amount, and sometimes I watch young YouTubers, and it's hilarious to watch them talk about the late 90s, and they're like, guys, there wasn't any streaming back then. Like, you couldn't just turn on your TV and watch every episode of a TV show, and I'm like, Fuck you for being right and making me feel very, very old. But yeah, no, now that I think about it, you say, like, I have like sometimes those kind of thoughts that it just cause me like anxiety. About, oh my God, if I was born. And I actually think about it. My mother told me once, she was like super thrilled. She told me that her uh, favorite movie was a sci fi movie when she was growing up. So from the 40s, blah, blah, blah. And she described it, and then I actually the dark that it was like the day that the earth stood still. Not the one with Tom Cruise before you actually make the joke, seen, or but the original one in black and white. That movie, that okay. <laughs> but the one, so I actually just put for it, you know, I just bought it for her. Bought it, I mean, download it. But uh, she was like really thrilled about like just being able to see that. And that's the first time that I thought that it's a if you like a movie, then now with the internet, you can look for it. But before that, what was there? How would you find even the title of that movie? Like imagine, so one of the hardest films that we watched to find, honestly, was The Idiots for me. Like how would we have tracked down The Idiots in the early 90s? There wouldn't be a way. You know, you had to no be way. like just... Yeah, or or just being like close friends with Lars von Trier, and if you are close friends with Lars von Trier, probably he will be like just torturing you for time, you know, for just making himself feel better. So from that perspective, there is no way of watching it. He'd be like, you can you can borrow this movie, but you're gonna have to act it out five times for me. <laughs> you will have to watch it in the poorest of the neighborhoods in India, <laughs> surrounded by people while eating a Big Mac. <laughs> uh, but no, it's. It's interesting, you know, that it's like for us, I don't know, when I put myself in, if you if you don't put yourself in perspective, I still think that it's an enjoyable movie. I mean, it has like the price that, hey, look, it's silent film. <laughs> it's what it is, it's hard to watch, but it's still enjoyable. But I, you, would, I would say it's not, it wasn't hard for me to watch at all. I was super tired today. We were like super tired. It was just a crazy day. And half of the movie was like, Oof, this is, it's not that it's bad. It's not that we are not engaged. It's not that we're not interested, but oh, it was. It's very different. Yeah. You, it requires a different amount of energy. 
But for me, it doesn't require as much as other silent films. This is compelling, interesting, engaging. Not that other silent films aren't, but I just felt like it really rose above its peers, we'll say. Let me just ask you, do you find these more entertaining than Metropolis? Yes. Oh, okay. Is that a new question we're going to ask every week? You like <laughs> you find more interesting? <laughs> what is your favorite silent film? You know, and honestly, one second, you told me that you only watched like three silent films or six. Like six or seven, and I can only really remember three. I was going to ask you if one of them was the artist. I don't consider that a silent film. There's Why? actually a thing in it with speaking. <laughs> I'm going to start on the artist. I think that it's such a piece of shit film. I had I think to. We can be honest. But this is for a different podcast. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's a perfect podcast to talk about that because we're talking about silent cinema. I remember watching this that film and being very impressed by the one scene with sound. Yeah. And also thinking this is not worth all the hype that it's getting. That's what I remember from that film. I agree. I thought that artistically was pleasing, you know, as an artistic exercise. But I have a bit of a problem when your only value is just making a homage. You know, like La La Land. No, I don't. Don't mix up oh, a masturbation. No, don't mix up masturbatory exercise with homage. This is slightly different. Masturbatory exercises. <laughs> I prefer a masturbatory exercise. I'm absolutely fine at Hollywood looking at itself and saying like, how amazing we are. Like well, I mean, but that's the same premise on uh, uh, Singing in the Rain. That's something we need to rewatch. I'll be very interested to discuss that film with you again. I mean, not again, just to watch it again and then discuss it with you. I almost watched it the other day. So don't watch it for me. Okay. Do you want me to change my pick? Not. <laughs> you do. You want me to change no, my pick? No, no. You want, no, want? You to... want to get out of these? Come on. No, I really want you to force me to go see that. <laughs> Okay, so, but in any case, it's like when I think about it, it's like silent film now. When you make a silent film right now, it's not the same thing because you can always get away with the, the troops that we have on every single genre. It's like back then, that was the interesting part. It's like these genres were not defined, most of them. It was like just like, we have no idea what works and what not. There is a reason, and the reason why we're discussing about this movie last week, it was because Silver Linings Playbook is a movie that plays by the book about like this a romantic comedy. So I'm going to have like this element that is going to be like these steps. And there was no really a serial killer movie or a thriller movie before, you know, or, or at least enough for actually just like defining a genre that they could actually follow. It's interesting what you're saying because I think it's the difference um, of taking a brand new medium and seeing how far you can take it and like what you can do with this, honestly, a brand new art form. Yeah. This is almost a hundred years later, the artist is like, what restrictions can we place 
on this art form and still make it beautiful and interesting. And one I don't think is better than the other, but me personally, I find the first more interesting. Like, okay, you have limitations, but how far can you take it? Well, but the thing is, like, uh, all of these movies, all of these recent, quote unquote, recent, like silent films, is that they have limitations, but they are self imposed. It's... <laughs> it's almost like trying to reinvent cinema with Dogma 95. I knew, I knew you were going to say is a artistic it's an interesting exercise but it's that it's not about like there is no other way of doing this and that's the part is like we cannot emulate that anymore it's like our mediums have like so evolved at this point that it's almost impossible to think about that i think that maybe like the next something interesting that i saw i don't know if i ever told you it was like there was a game on oculus quest that was called the tempest and basically what it would be is like for you and one of your friends you guys would have like a private performance in a virtual world like similar to Journey, imagine, of The Tempest by Shakespeare with virtual actors. And it would be like a live performance. But is it that's like the kind of how we can make theater happen here? We just do it live. Yeah, again, you... it's, it's that difference between like seeing how far you can take something new versus seeing what you can produce from what's new with weird restrictions. Yeah, it's basically just taking something new and making it look old. Yeah. And that's just fake. You know, it's like... The, the one counterpoint I will say is that Dogma 95 did end up producing interesting shit. Like, again, I know you don't like The Idiots, but I think The Idiots is a far more interesting attempt at a film not a better film, but a far more interesting attempt at a film than the artist. I don't agree with I don't agree. I mean, I find like just the idios, like so... The problem is that then I have like Thomas Winterberg doing Celebration, you know, and uh, what was the guy of the uh, samurai? Um, John... But what if we talk about Europa, where Lars von Trude did not have to film in that super antiquated way, he created something incredibly beautiful. Oh, he did, but there were no like. I think that half of the limitations are a bit more of a. I want to do something artistically amazing, and he took like elements. I mean, he actually had like a lot of green screen narration, other stuff that it wouldn't have been possible, you know, like during that time back in that day. And it's like he actually reinvented like that combination created something new. I still think that Europa may be his best movie. You can take outdated approaches and still create something new, but it's never as interesting as taking something new to a place it's never gone before. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is that you don't have those opportunities all the time. It has to be like a new medium. And it's like cinema has been already with us like 120 years at this point. To be honest, I hate how much we mentioned Lars von Trier, but watching the sets in this film, I thought... I don't think I've seen sets as interesting as this from this film until not down to Mandalay. And it's the complete opposite. The sets are so overwhelming in this and they're over the top, but they're playing with something that's new. And I think Lars von Trier was playing with something that was new in that. <sighs> Look, when I when I went to watch Dogville, I was like, oh my god, this is going to be incredible. And then when I left this, I said, look, this is a radio drama mixed up with a theater play. I'm going to 
gonna make us watch Dogville at some point, not soon. But hey, I, I haven't. Seen, whenever we talk, I talk about Mandalay and you talk about Dogville. Well, but I actually watched Mandalay too, you know. But I found it like pretty for. Yeah, yeah, it was both, but I found it forgettable, you know, like compared to Dogville. But it's because it's the same format. It's a bit more about like Lars von Trier looking at America and just saying, it's like, you guys are broken. It's like, but dude, you're not having it. It's like, you don't have like the finesse for actually just make me feel miserable in the same kind of effortless way. Yeah, he's just kind of being bitchy. Yeah. Hanukkah's being like, hey, we've got a problem and we need to talk about it. <laughs> No, we don't need to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it, and you're going to listen. Exactly. And you are like completely, you know, like defenseless, you know, towards me. But in any case, going back to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I think that this is a movie that, if you like cinema, you know, and when you like, when you say you like cinema, you are not saying I like movies. And you are not saying I like Marvel movies because usually when someone tells me nowadays I like movies and I start digging, I have the feeling that you like Marvel movies and you don't want to. We saw all the Thor movies. That's what they're saying. Exactly, twice at least. Uh, I could say that this is a a must. Yep, I completely agree. Um, I actually have a. A friend's husband is obsessed with cinema, and he got an entire sleeve tattoo that shows the history of cinema from the first scene where the train is coming through the screen. Oh, nice! Freaking stuff. So I texted her and I said, "I bet your husband has seen this. Has he?" You know, picture. A picture of the somnambulist on his forearm, and I was like, "Yeah, this is a guy who likes cinema. Like, if you like cinema, you need to at some point see this." Yeah. It's not that you can't like cinema without having seen it, but this is an important film, like you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that people are going to be like just put off by the idea of just watching a silent film, you know. But with Metropolis, it's exactly the same as with Metropolis. I think that this is like so important that they need to be watched. There is no kind of, uh, you know, eh, it's silent. I don't care too much about it. Said, no, dude, is that this? This is the definition of cinema. Whoop! <laughs> that was a pretty loud part. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, to everyone, they should watch it. But I think that we should go over the questions. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, questions. Whoa. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Does he agree or not? Yeah, I, he fell asleep too. So I don't know if he really likes it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so would you watch it again? Yeah, one hundred percent. Would you watch it again tomorrow? To be honest, after I finished the film, I thought about forcing my husband to watch it with me tonight. Uh, so I think the answer is yes. Uh, if it's just me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait a little while. Um, but yes, I will watch it again. Okay, I could watch it again. I don't know when, but definitely I will watch it again. But probably not tomorrow. I was like afraid, you know. I was trying to just think about okay, should it was like a couple of scenes. And I was like, uh, I don't know, maybe later. This needs, in my opinion, this is a film that needs to be seen in its entirety. Partly because of the pacing of silent films with those like dialogue cards, but yeah. Uh, would you recommend it? Yes, to anyone, absolutely anyone. Yeah, he's got to tell you earlier that is like this. If anyone likes cinema, you know, like beyond like the blockbusters, is this amazing? 
and it's like it's going to be even for those young kids in YouTube, is that they're going to be like just like oh my god, is that this this was like 100 years ago, 102 years ago? This is insane. 102 years ago. Is there there so well? Nothing ages this well. Nothing. Yeah. So imagine there are like very few human beings that they could have seen this originally when it was released alive. Oh, that's an interesting point because how many people had access to theaters? How many theaters was it showing in? Yeah, and then you have to think that this person probably has to be like at least 110 or so. Well, I was just looking at the director. He was born in like 1880 or something. I was like, how crazy is it? We watched a film directed by someone born in the 1880s. <laughs> in the 19th century, is that that guy was born 100 years before I was born? It's insane. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, could you remember it? Um, I mean, I forget some details, but 20 years after I watched it the first time, I remembered enough. So gotcha. All right. So we should set a, an alert, an alarm for 15 years in the future for just asking you if you remember it. Yeah, like 2038. Give me a call. Okay, 2038. Uh, um, so uh, for me the answer is yes the last time that I watched it well I actually okay uh, I really liked it you know the first time and now what I was thinking about it I was I remember everything I mean not everything but I remember like quite a good chunk I remember the scene at the end when he actually still pushed it and no 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 it's the reality is that this is just the asylum that just playing some prank on me you know and the doctor caligari was like the one that he was like the bad guy let's say yep but it wasn't and it was like this is the twist that is coming from the beginning so and i think that that's like the important one of thing to remember uh is there anything artistic about it i mean the cinematography blew me away these were all on sets the lighting even though it was dark like the faces were lit up it was beautiful the sets blew my mind the music i i want to know if i watched the original score because the music was incredible um the story was great yes there are so many artistic things about this that i love yeah and it, as we were saying earlier is that the kind of influence that it had from an aesthetic perspective, from a story, a narrative perspective, are so big that I... It's the definition of art, you know? It's that like when you actually influence like so many talented people after you, it's like, that's art. That's, what's art. that's what art is about. So doing just a little bit of like research about it, criticism about this film, meaning like film criticism, not necessarily saying it's bad. So many respected film theorists call this the first art house film, and I can absolutely see it. It's it's the definition of an art movie, in my opinion. I don't know, man. I don't know. I feel a bit torn about it, because uh, if I think about our house, well, the thing is, by today's standards, like the story that they tell is a is generic run of the meal. And I'm not saying this in a bad way. I'm just saying it's exactly the same way as Silverland in Play Blue is a rom-com, Shutter Island is a thriller, and this is a thriller. Is that they play like the run of the meal thriller. 
but you have to like take into respect the best of cave paintings so you can understand how we got to Mona Lisa. So yeah, yeah compare 100, 100 years of film, we evolved. But if you think about in 1920, could you go to another theater and see something that interesting? I would bet not. No, at that time, you wouldn't. But it doesn't make it. Do you think that art house cinema is supposed to be better than everything else that is out there? I would argue it's trying to be better than everything else. It doesn't always succeed, but it's not trying to be a Marvel film. It's trying to get across something else, something elevated. But I think that is a, that's the problem of actually trying to apply the criteria from nowadays. Because back then, as we were saying earlier, nothing was really defined. Is that every single movie was trying to do is that we have no freaking idea about like what we're doing. You know, is that maybe Hollywood was doing like a bit more about like, hey, let's just bring a format to the table as we see in the fall. And this is why I've gone back and forth between the two scores I have picked out, because it's like, yes, the story is very basic compared to today, but I feel like we're obligated to compare it to 1920 films. Okay, but it's like we can actually just talk about like what films were out there in 1920. <laughs> Birth of a Nation, that's all I got. Battleship this... Attempt. God, that one is hard to watch. Uh... <laughs> Of 19, well, it's silent film. Wasn't Lumiere? Lumiere? I think that that was earlier, earlier than that. But as Impotekin is 25. Uh, the Kid from Charlotte Chaplin is 21. The Jazz Singer is 27. That is the first non silent, the first talking. Okay, so let's talk about Charlie Chap Chapman. Chaplin. Um, Chaplin. This film is a million times better than anything he ever did with his slapstick comedy. <gasps> oh my goodness, a hundred times better. So that I means that it... it's going to be a controversial statement, by the way. I'm so surprised by your reaction. <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is, once again, is this thing is like it was him and Buster Keaton, like the ones that they were doing that, that, that slapstick comedy, you know? But if you think about like the, uh, the great dictator, is that that goes steps beyond that? It's fucking bold, a movie like that. It's not twenties. So I'll I'll say that I'm open to changing my mind. I'm just saying I've never seen anything but Charlie Chaplin that I was like, <sighs> wow, this is like the genesis of cinema. Like this is where so many influence came from. Because the only slapstick comedy I see now is like Paul Blart Mall Cop. So thank you, Charlie Chapman. But no <laughs> So you're thinking more about like the legacy that he left behind. I just don't think that's smart humor. Okay. Okay. No, that's fair. I mean, I would take like on the silent part, maybe, you know, that he say, okay, we know what we're going for. We said, you're just going for this, having a good time, not having to think or anything. And this, this movie may require something a bit more. Uh, Wings and Epping on the Air. Uh, Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Wally. It was from 28. But it's in Potent Game, 25. Metropolis is 20. Oh, it's 27? That doesn't sound right. Nosferatu is 22. Payday, also Chaplin. Sunrise, Steamboat Wheel. True. I mean, I think that uh, we will have to just check it out. Honestly, I think that there may be interesting stuff from back then. It was because nothing was defined. Everything was like a blank slate for just doing whatever you want. 
we are I, never going to see that. See, from both of our sides, we are just not well versed in cinema from the 1910s. And so yeah. it's hard for us to have that discussion. Yeah, it's just. There is a lot, you know, that we are not going to be like watching, probably. So, from that perspective, it's like, I'm fine, I'll take it. You know, I still think that even like watching in perspective, this from 1920 is mind blowing. But it's what we were saying earlier is that you can be, if the guys didn't want to do like a twist ending, is that I actually commend the studio for actually just pushing them. For it's like, dude, if you don't do a twist ending, this is one more story. I agree. I think that's an excellent case where a studio improved the film versus nowadays where they typically just ruin it. I wonder if there were other movies that they were saved by a studio. Like tried to just like reach too hard, too far. I feel like that's a book idea. Film the what? Saved. <laughs> uh so film studios safe uh so do you remember uh the little soap of horrors i never saw it what is wrong with you dude i didn't watch films like that dumb and dumber the original star wars none of that really ever appealed to me okay <laughs> i don't know where you're putting them in the same bucket but screw you they're the same quality right no they're not <laughs> um uh, Okay, it doesn't matter. That was like another one that the studio changed and I always feel like just really curious about like people's opinion about it because the original ending is like, what the fuck? And it's really what the fuck. Let's just leave it there. It's like, holy shit. And this was supposed to be a, a Broadway musical. Is that if I had been a Broadway musical and it ends up like this, I would be in shock, you know, for two minutes about like, seriously, someone approved like having this ending? I honestly don't know anything about this movie. Like, yeah. Movie, but... Yeah, it's a bit of a campy musical, but you know, the songs are pretty catchy. It has a Steve Martin with an amazing song about being a dentist because like, oh, I was a sadist when I was growing up. And then my mother told me what I should do with my life. You'll be a dentist. Your purpose is causing pain. Yep. Uh, do you think that this is a timeless piece? Yes. I mean, I'm still blown away by it 100 years later. <laughs> Since you watched it for the first time. I watched it 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Amazing back then, it's amazing now. Yeah, it's the same, you know. Uh, I fully agree. I think that it's completely timeless. And I think that we will, well, not we, but some of the people will watch it in 100 years in the future. Um, it could be incredible for them. Would you turn this into a TV show? I, no, I wouldn't touch this. I, no. But I'm not asking about like touching it. Do you think that there is enough content or potential for actually turning into a TV show? I feel like if it was no, no, no. <laughs> Not a TV show. Okay. Um, Can HBO remake this into a six one-hour miniseries and find enough in the characters and in the storyline and the somnambulist to really stretch this out and make like decent entertainment? Yes, but it's never going to be as important as this film is. So I, I wouldn't do it. Or. Or, hear me out, hear me out, 
is one more season of American Horror Story that is called Silent. And I they have this Nosferatu. Things that I love ever again. No, are you kidding me? I only saw seasons like one and two. No, do not remake this and put Lady Gaga as your star. <laughs> Don't like put Dylan McDermott as somebody who, no, Dylan, uh, the other one, walk around naked just because you can. No. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that it would turn into a TV show. For me, this was like, okay, we're done. Let's just move on at this point. It was fun. It was good. You know, I don't think that there is enough story here for us to just keep pushing it. It's a bite-sized film, and it works as a bite-sized film. I mean, half of the one hour and seventeen minutes is like just dialogue cards. There's not a tremendous amount that happens, and. It works because it's like 30 minutes of story. Well, but that's usually what happens in a uh, in silent film. You know, there is a lot of uh, overacting, and then there is like a card of one I'm second. Just saying that the way this story was produced was never meant for long form media. It was meant to be short form, and I want to keep it that way. Okay, no, that's fair. Uh, so, last question: Do you think how this movie could have been better? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, not even like just applying today's standards. Is like even if I think about it, I don't know exactly what it would be missing, you know, because you cannot use like special effects or anything. But I think, like for example, like a similar, th similar thriller, Zodiac. You know, David Fincher that is seen in the basement. That is the thing that is like one of the most terrifying things, along David Lynch's diner scene in Mulholland Drive. And they're in movies that they are not supposed to be horror. They're thrillers. And I think about like how they build the suspense there. Maybe you could do something like that in this movie. It's like as everything is so overactive, it's like it's hard to convey like the same fear, but it's like it's a bit more because of our sensibilities also change. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. This is a new medium, is a like, dude. There is no way that you could actually have anticipated where cinema was. And, you know, my boyfriend, I was explaining about, like, hey, look, this is the reason why it is so overactive, is because most of these people, they come from theater. You know, so they actually are used to having to overact so they can see, like, what they're doing across the whole theater. Yeah, and they have to get across the fact that they couldn't speak. Everything yeah. was visible. Everything. Yeah. So from that perspective, is they look for changing something to make it better, you will make a different movie. Yeah, it would be completely different. It would be changing the DNA of what this is. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's like you know like the magic of this that they were able to do a story like this in 1920. You know, and a story that is still enjoyable to watch by nowadays standards. I mean, probably not for the average movie core that only goes to Marvel movies, but. Nobody that's not the greatest Avengers is going to watch this. Yeah. But. Okay. Uh, so, so, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be like cheating a bit, you know, about like asking you for a movie that we watched in the past. But I'm curious about if you remember about a movie that we watched before we started recording. But we talk many times about rewatching it again. So now is the time to just say, you remember about it 
enough and just move away from it forever. But do you remember Celine Dion Ghost Body? I remember absolutely nothing from that film besides it was so boring. And then I remember there's a scene where either two girls are sitting on a bench in a park or one girl is getting chased through a park. And that's it. That's all I got. Nothing, nothing else. So you don't remember the burlesque shows? There are burlesque shows in there? Uh, one of them is a magician. I don't know if you remember. And uh, some of the uh, stuff that she does is like, this is not magically realistic. So there are like many scenes of uh, magic realism across the movie. And it ends up like with them, like just going boating as happy go lucky. All I remember is the rage I felt after three, three hours had passed and it still wasn't over. And I thought, I'm going to make him watch L four more times. <laughs> <sighs> okay, well, it was experience. Let's just say that. It was. It, it was, all joking aside, it, it was an interesting cinematic exercise. Uh, I didn't like it. I don't remember it. Uh, and the thing is, like, I would say that uh, regardless if you like it or not, it was experienced, but not as a, a pleasant one as this one, as the cabinet. Yeah. I would say it was a failed experiment for me personally. Not that it will be for everyone, but I wanted to experiment. It didn't work. I will never watch it again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, should we score this? Yes. All right. As you pick this up, it's my turn to score first. Uh, my score is going to be a nine. And mine is going to be <sighs> 9.5. Oh, gotcha. for a second, I thought that you were going to be giving it a 10. That's the score I went back and forth on. Um, it's a great film, in my opinion. It's not quite a 10, but it's incredibly impressive for being 102 years old. 102 right. years old. So you only gave a 10 to uh, La Ventura, and I only gave a 10 to Fight Club. Interesting. I thought I had given a 10 to a couple other films, but yeah, that makes sense. No, I think that you had given like... Aventura, it's not a 10, so I feel good about this score. Sorry, say again. I said when you compare this film to La Ventura, it's clearly not a 10. Oh, okay. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I was checking, it's like, we both gave... Oh, I gave like two point, so two nine point fives, and you had given three. We're very discerning. Huh? Actually, I think that there is like a threshold. It's like okay, if it goes above nine, we're trying to be careful here. We can come back to bite us. Okay, man. Uh, My pick. It's your turn to pick. Oh yeah, that's right. I come. <laughs> I I run this by you. I told you I'm going to go to the cinema to watch this. You know, now I honestly really want to change the pick. I do. I'm sorry. Prerogative, change it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can do like a double session or anything, but uh, I think that it could be better to just watch next singing in the rain. I don't think that we ever watch a musical. Um, hello. 
We did Dancer in the Dark like two episodes ago. Also, Moulin Rouge, now that I think about it. Uh, also, the Polish Killer Mermaid film. That was before we started recording. But yeah. That was a weird one. It was a pretty freaking weird, dark one. Um, but no, I think because we talk about a like, silent film and we talk also about like homemade and onanis exercise, and I'm just curious about like, how does this look? All right, well, like I said, I'm super into it. I remember watching this film the first time and I liked it, but it's been a long time. And I want to learn more about musicals. Okay, yeah, there's always a good place to learn. Okay. Uh, to everyone else out there, thank you so much for listening, for putting with us, putting up with us for 150 episodes. That is insane that we had that amount of episodes in less than two years. No, because we started recording right before the pandemic, so it's been just over two years. I cannot even believe that we have been like two years with this craziness. God, it's insane now that I think about it. I think we started February 2020. Oh my goodness, you're absolutely Long right. Down, either March 12th or March 17th, I can never remember. It was, sorry? Lockdown, at least in San Francisco, was either oh, yeah. March 12th or March 17th, so we're right at the two year mark. Oh my God. Yeah, it's insane. It doesn't matter, like two years, two years of episodes, and we have like 150 episodes out there. It's crazy. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> Anything else that they should do? Uh, you don't have to wear masks anymore. And so I guess you don't necessarily have to wash your hands, but just do it because it's hygienic. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just be a good citizen. Be clean, people. <laughs> okay, bye.